This is episode two of a special series of the Theology Matters podcast focused on theology and the coronavirus pandemic. I'm your host, Josh Malden, and in the coming weeks, we'll be providing conversations with theologians and other scholars who are reflecting from their own disciplinary backgrounds on this global health crisis. On the podcast today is Joel Hodge, who is Senior Lecturer in Theology at Australian Catholic University and who participated in CTI's program on religion and violence. Hodge is the author of a recent book published by Bloomsbury titled Violence in the Name of God. We welcome your questions and comments by email at editor at ctinquiry.org. If you like what you hear, share this podcast with others and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks for joining the conversation. Joel, I want to first ask you about uh, your recent book that was published, Violence in the Name of God, the, the Militant Response to Modernity, which is published by Bloomsbury in 2020 and which was originally a, pro- a program, that, a project that you were working on at CTI. And maybe yeah, Josh. Bit, yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, that's right. It was um, it was a project I was working on at CTI last year, looking at militant jihadism and the the extreme violence within militant jihadism and trying to understand the nature of that violence, the dynamics of it, um, and also to try to understand how it fit within the context of modernity. How was it a modern phenomenon, um, particularly as a form of totalitarian violence, um, but also as this very extreme form of violence, the indiscriminate form of violence that jihadists perpetrate, how that's a manifestation of a trajectory of violence within modernity, um, where you could trace that, say, from from the French Revolution onwards, um, which is what the main theorist that I work with, um, René Girard, a, a French-American theorist, he traces this trajectory of, of escalating violence, um, he talks about it as, from particularly the French Revolution onwards, but even before that, um, as this kind of total violence that becomes um, more and more prevalent in the modern period and the, then responses to those forms of total violence um, in, in the form of terrorism, of guerrilla warfare and then terrorism and how they're, they're similar phenomenon, even though sometimes they're, they're up against each other. So I was looking at those those key features within jihadism and trying to come to grips with the the mentality of violence within it. Right. So you're very influenced by the the thinker Rene Girard, and I'll ask you in a moment to maybe speak more about that. But touching on what you just talked about, based on his thought, what do you see as the distinctions between violence in kind of the pre-modern world and in the modern world? Yeah. Thanks. The for Girard, that's a really key distinction that um, he he sees uh, uh, pre pre modern cultures or um, cultures that are engaged in um, sacrificial rituals um, that have very strong laws and taboos and um, sac- and sacred stories myths that justify those rituals and taboos. Um, as structured around a certain mechanism that he calls the scapegoat mechanism, that human cultures, as they were developing, had this problem of of violence, of instability, that they no longer could rely on their instincts and their dominance patterns that that higher primates and, and other animal species could rely on for order. They no longer had those mechanism 
films to contain um, their violence and their desire, um, as Girard talks about, and sacrificial rituals deriving out of this scapegoating mechanism um, were used to provide that order. Um, so Girard thinks that there is a certain type of limited violence, sacrificial violence, scapegoating violence, that is um, the means by which human cultures developed uh, in the in the process of evolution and process of harmonization. Um, so they used limited violence to prevent greater violence, a kind of pharmakos in the Greek sense, which um, a little a little bit of um, the the disease to to stop the bigger disease. And the pharmakoi in the Greek were sacrificial victims. So um, Girard's talking about the way in which those those cultures use. Um, sacrifice um, as a means by which to provide order and, and but Girard says the modern world doesn't have that luxury as much anymore we still scapegoat but we don't scapegoat as effectively um, because of particularly because of the biblical traditions the biblical and Abrahamic traditions that have um, given us insight into the cycles of violence that have made us aware of the victims of violence um, and if you just think of the biblical stories um, figures like Abel Joseph, um, Job, the psalmist, um, the suffering servant of Isaiah, Jesus, of course, himself, all of these figures being um, victims of, of mob, mob violence. And Girard says that the, the Bible um, in particular makes us um, very sensitive to this mob violence and to the, to the plight of the victim in a way that other mythologies don't do um, in the same type of way. And, but because of this, um, this tradition, it, it, it's disrupted the means by which human cultures have contained violence. Jesus says, you know, I don't come to bring peace, but a sword. And Girard interprets that to mean he's coming to disrupt the conventional structures that try to contain violence and use um, violence to, to bring about order, use violence and death to, to bring about um, social order. Jesus comes to disrupt that. And the disruption, though, um, results in two possibilities. And we see this in modernity. One is more extreme violence to try to counter the, the loss of sac the effectiveness of sacrificial violence or the movement towards nonviolence, the movement towards human rights, um, for example, and, and talk of human dignity, the sense of the, the, the protection and rights of victims of people, of all people against um, bad, you know, bad forms of collectivism. So um, Girard sees these two possibilities, and in particular, in the in the escalating violence form, um, jihadism, obviously being one of the, the main and biggest manifestations, terrorism being uh, a manifestation of this propensity towards extreme indiscriminate violence. Um, not violence that's not just interested in containing violence, using limited forms of violence to contain violence, but using violence to destroy completely one's enemies and, and bring about a new, a new order, a total new order that re-sacralizes violence, which is what I argue in the book. Girard only talks about terrorism a little bit towards the end of his, his life. He died in 2015. Um, his last work was on modern warfare and violence, and I'm extending and applying some of his thought in this area to, to jihadism. Perhaps it's too simplistic of a question, but would Girard see the modern world as more violent than the pre-modern world? 
or less. I'm thinking of, of Steven Pinker's work on the better angels of our nature, which I, I don't think I've discussed with you, but obviously he would be arguing more that the world, the modern world becomes less violent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think Girard would see both that in some ways it's become more violent. Um, we, we have total societies that have been um, mobilized for warfare uh, from particularly the French revolution onwards. And we can think of the 20th century world war one and two, of course, um, being total warfare, the mobilization of the whole world in, in forms of violence. And then the development of nuclear warfare, which is, of course, given us the capacity to completely destroy ourselves. So, uh, and then indiscriminate forms of, of violence with terrorism. So in some ways, um, modern cultures have become more violent. But in other ways, um, I think Girard would say that, it, that we become more sensitive of violence and we've become less violent, particularly in um, our local spheres, our own domestic contexts. Um, we, we're, we're very sensitive to violence and in the West in particular, sensitive to the rights of other people and so on. And so that provides limits to, um, to violence in a way. And it stops, for example, the state um, from imposing totalitarian forms of violence uh, on us liberal world orders you know have some some benefits i think from the the biblical mentality the secular modernity secular liberal modernity has taken on some of those best insights and tried to apply them so so there's that kind of double movement and of course even in our domestic sphere we can say that in some ways become less violent but in some ways there's still a lot of violence particularly domestic violence where you know, there's forms of, um, there's unresolved for tensions that our culture is not resolving. And so people, men in particular, cast their violence onto women. They, they use the women as their victims, as their scapegoats. So, so there's, there's an ambiguity about modernity. And that ambiguity is exactly what troubles militant jihadists. They, they want to um, suppress that ambiguity. They want to do away with that ambiguity and they want to reimpose a total order that will give us black and white, right and wrong, and, and re-sacralize violence in the process. So they use violence as a sacred mechanism. They, their violence is sacred. It's commissioned by God. It's, it's a holy duty in order to bring about this, this true and proper uh, order that is from Allah, um, supposedly. Um, and of course, it's a distortion of Islam, but it's, um, it's a, a response to this ambiguity uh, within modernity and even within Islamic and Muslim contexts, particularly in colonial and post-colonial periods where the state was in flux and um, establishing itself and often in, in a very violent and totalitarian way. And these Islamic movements came initially to respond to, to a lot of those colonial and post-colonial regimes and often had experiences of repression um, at the heart of their identity. Uh, and that's why you'll, uh, in part, while you'll often hear jihadists talk about themselves as victims, they don't see themselves as aggressors. They see themselves um, as victims. In fact, there's a famous quote from a founder of Hamas, the jihadist group in Palestine, and he says, you think we are aggressors. That's the number one misunderstanding. We are not. 
we are victims that, and and some of this goes back to that experience of repression but it all but it um, comes back it more broadly to a perspective within jihadism whereby they think um, taking the side of the victim will give them ju um, justification to do violence and this is the other side to modernity that Girard uh, notices um, that's different from the ancient world or the pre-modern world that people doing violence will often justified it in the name of the victim or because they've been victimized in the ancient world this is not the case you don't go around claiming to be a victim you go go around claiming to be a conqueror uh and and that god wants you to have power and conquest but in the modern world no that's that's not not that's not the way to do things that's not morally legitimate in the modern world you claim to be a victim and that gives you legitimation to do violence and jihadists um do that in an extreme type of way they see themselves as victims or defending the victims of modernity, the Muslim um, victims that they identify with, and um, they they see themselves as totally justified then in doing violence in the name of the victim, uh, that God has commissioned them to do this, to defend the victim and to um, bring about this new world order that will be more just, um, more clear, um, and bring about more happiness to, to more people because it won't have this ambiguity and decadence that, that, that modernity has. In doing this, of course, in, in claiming to be doing violence in the name of the victim and on behalf of God, they're distorting the Abrahamic insight into, into God. They're distorting the insight of Judaism, Christianity and Islam into God, who is the defender of victims, who's on the side of victims. And they use that insight rather uh, not for nonviolent purposes like, um, like uh, you know, that Jesus would do or, or any of the prophets or what have you. They do it instead for the purposes of extreme forms of totalitarian violence. Uh, and they think that God who is on the side of victims is commissioning them to do this. And they have to, of course, interpret the Islamic tradition in a certain type of way to make this work. But they, but they believe that they're totally justified in, and that, and that other Muslims who don't take this pathway are illegitimate Muslims. They're not true, true Muslims. If they don't see that defending violence on behalf of God in the name of jihad in an absolutely violent way is the only way. That's very interesting, Joel. And I think I'd like to um, pivot in a way, but also keep your book in mind. You're, you're in Melbourne, Australia, and of course, we're going through this pandemic now, and I want to get your thoughts a bit on it. This, so your book came out uh, early this year, and at first, I'm just yep. curious, has that has the this whole crisis, I assume it sort of changed the, the reception the way that you thought it would go? Well, uh, oh yeah, Every, everyone's thinking about coronavirus now um, and, and what that means and the, the total changes that we've had to our, our ways of life and, and the, of course the terrible deaths that have occurred and um, the, the extreme forms of illness, etc. that people have found themselves in. So it's, it's been a massive, massive change to, to who we are, what, to what we're doing um, and that, of course, has taken taken the focus. But um, some of the similar dynamics that I've noted in the book uh, are present in our uh, our current crisis. That um, Girard talks about the way in which physical contagions in human contexts um, soon become social contagions. He he looks at the famous case of Oedipus, the, the Greek figure, and um, in Thebes, who who is um, trying to stop a plague and 
um, the, the way eventually he's, the plague is stopped is, is by Oedipus actually being expelled from Thebes because they find out he's committed this terrible crime and um, he, that he's married his mother and killed his father. So for human beings, Girard notes that what, what seem like natural crises, a plague, soon gravitate into social crises. And I think the same uh, can be said of our, our current um, predicament that um, the, the panic buying that we see um, the the way in which people have just gone and tried to take as much toilet paper or hand sanitizer or what have you from from shops and even hospitals stealing from hospitals that some um, that's a very mimetic form that he would call it because underlying all violent shroud sees this mimesis this imitative capacity that humans have in their behavior and their desires that humans have this unique um, form of desire mimetic desire that um that um, is stimulated by other people that we're not bound uh, totally by our instincts, by our, by our biology that Gerard says instead our desires are free floating and that they're stimulated in a social environment. Um, maybe, maybe stop there and, and step back in, in a very practical way. How does panic buying, what is the, what is going on with people's actions when they do that? Uh, well, you, you have a whole article about it, but really, yeah, it's a clear uh, it's clearly a mimetic phenomenon it's an imitative phenomenon that people start thinking that there's scarcity which is of course uh, a modern mentality for our for our economy and um um this this scarcity though doesn't necessarily have a logic to it it can gravitate onto anything i mean why toilet paper you could give a kind of rationale for that but really you know there's 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 not a complete rationale for why people just went crazy for toilet paper i mean it's a viral infection we're having it's not it's not a it's not a stomach infection or something like that so why why toilet paper and it, it's interesting to note that um in a, I, and i mentioned this in the article um that um when you ask an article you wrote uh online in, in called the, the odd heroism of doing nothing of, yes, that's right. That um, if you ask people, you know, why are they doing it? And, and this comes up from, from another place that I had found this. I've, and I've heard this a couple of different places that, um, well, because everyone else is doing it. If you ask the customers, that's often what they'll say. They don't necessarily have a rationale for why they're doing it. It's just because everyone else is doing it. So this mimesis, human beings are, are prone to this kind of herd behavior, this mimetic behavior it doesn't mean that we're unfree it just means that sometimes we become so mimetic so imitative that we do give away our freedom we make choices that are wrong um we have the choice but we but we but we imitate in this way because we just feel this great compulsion to do so so that's the negative side of the the current um, pandemic and you can see other social contagions you know the way in which we try we're trying to establish blame we're trying to re work out responsibility which is a natural human thing to do and that, and that's that's necessary we need to we need to find out who what caused us what etc but then it becomes a blame game you know we start talking about who who did what wrong and and in we've seen instances of people even abusing medical professionals because they're worried um, that the medical professionals are you know they're wearing their gowns or whatever out in the public and they're worried that they're going to get infected by them um, or something who knows and they start they start abusing them they start getting really agitated and saying you know why are you out here with us etc so pe people start to see um, 
contagion and they and they they see it in this social way as i said and they start picking out people who are who are infected who are dangerous and and putting blame onto them scapegoating them in in really irrational ways and it's terrible i mean our medical professionals are doing this great job and then they 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 get abuse on their way home or something like this now that's not a majority of people but but it shows the mentality that we can get into and of course the blame game goes on in the media constantly who's who's at fault why did why did people um, do this rather than that? Why did our leaders do this? Why, why did China do this? And some of that, of course, is legitimate, but then it can just be about scapegoating, about putting total blame onto them and forgetting our own mistakes, forgetting how we did, did the wrong thing maybe. We weren't as cognizant of this pandemic as much as we should have in the early period. We weren't as worried about it as much as we should have been maybe, and maybe we should have taken more precautions. So, so anyway, the, the scapegoating game goes on as well. But on the positive side, we've got very positive forms of solidarity, these positive forms of mimesis, um, Girard would call them, that, that people are, are willing to stay at home or to socially distance, to imitate that form of behaviour because they know that's, that's the way to, to prevent the crisis and it's the good and responsible thing to do. So you can have positive forms of, of imitation and this is reinforced by those really moving... Um, uh, kind of statements from medical professionals where they say, you know, we're putting ourselves at risk by going to work. So you do the right thing by staying home. And, and in the article, I, I pick up on something from David Brooks of the New York times saying this kind of odd heroism that we're now being called to that of, of being, of, of staying at home, of doing nothing in a way, but in, in, in so doing resisting those temptations to be selfish, um, to, to, be competitive even to say look i you know those other people um are, are getting to do it so why not me you know some of the other people are getting out um so why not i resisting those temptations and saying no i have to um you know follow follow the rules do the do the right thing do the virtuous thing and 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 help you know in this effort to try to try to save lives and prevent the pandemic and i think that's why we've seen in in democracies in the west but in also in asia and across the world that people have been willing to comply because they've they've eventually moved and seen that the positive form the positive way of going positive uh, imitative form is to is to do do the right thing and and stay at home it, it, we in a, a lot of places the initial period was tough because people were initially not wanting to do that and just imitating everyone else going to the beach or the shop or the cafe still but then once you got over that initial period and people started to change their behaviors and imitate and uh, identify with the right thing to do then we started seeing much more compliance and and the rate of infection going down so that's a great a great thing to do and we didn't have to do it by welding people to their doors <laughs> like some countries did yeah. keeping them inside despite their will we we worked with people and we asked them to do the right thing and we put positive models out there for them in terms of medical professionals and celebrities and so on and and that that got people in the right right mindset Maybe just as a last question, Joel, uh, how is your own thinking, your own research even being influenced by this pandemic, if at all? Are, are there certain trajectories you're thinking in that you weren't before? Certain ways, are there theological resources we could draw on at this time that you'd like to bring before us? 
Yeah, that, I, I think I think there is, and it's a really good question. And I think I'm still thinking about it in a way because we're still going through the experience. But but yeah. one one way is that just seeing how and and this is a cliche now a little bit, but um, how interconnected we really are and realizing that again you know because in the modern world we can often and especially in the west we can start to think about things in very individualistic terms and and take for granted uh, and ignore the deep social connections that we have the way in which for example our uh, we are really formed by a social context and formed in in the sense of our desires you know our, through our parents our friends through advertising and so on we're really socially uh, deeply socially formed um, but at the same time, we're also very biologically connected, and that's what the current pandemic is showing, that um, we're, we're, we're biologically still very connected to each other, even though we're not connected in the same way that, say, maybe animals are in, in, in the forms of instinctual mechanisms and so on. But we're, we're still very, very connected to each other, even on this biological level, so that those two two areas actually then in an, in a way combine that the biology and the soci sociology of our human existence is um is one of interconnectedness that we're still individuals with identities but we're individuals with identities because of our social connections because our social connections and our biology enable us to have this great capacity for uh, thought and for um, reflection and for freedom and for pursuing our desire and so on. So that's that's one way I've been been thinking about this our, our own uh, human condition in a new type of way because of the pandemic. And it's interesting just to read about viruses as well. That you know viruses aren't all bad. That in fact they're they've been very crucial to the development and evolution of 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 um, life and of, of human human life as well in our genome even so that's that's one way and then the other way is of course just confronting our our own mortality and suffering again that this really brings it to the fore in a way that perhaps in the west we we might might not be comfortable with or or we we again we took for granted we might put aside you know the sick and the dying into these um kind of places where they get taken care of but anemic and and out of sight you know hospitals and and nursing homes and 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 such and now we're we're actually seeing that and being called to responsibility to those people um, but also for ourselves i think starting to think a little bit more about what does it mean to suffer what does it mean to die um and how how does um christianity speak to that we've just gone through easter and in Australia, for example, where I am, um, we had uh, nationally telecast uh, liturgies of, of church services, um, which which is unusual. It's at least on the commercial channels. We had one uh, from St Mary's Catholic Cathedral on Good Friday and the Easter Sunday, and 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 that um, again then speaks to I think this sense of um, people coming to confront their own mortality and deep existential questions and how does Jesus's own death redeem um, death? How does it, how does it speak to us that there's more than death in if, in effect, we go around taking that for granted for most people do, because if they didn't, they'd plunge into a deep depression, you know, what, what is life all about then? But now we have to really confront that. And, and of course, Christianity at Easter time gives us that great message of, 
of of love overcoming death of of god uh, taking up our life to its fullest extent even to death um not to not to buck away from suffering and death but to confront it and to take it on and to and and to experience it with deep love and forgiveness and inner peace and uh, and and taking that on for us not only as an example but but so that we can enter into life with god ourselves seeing our death as a as a transition into that greater life with god so that i think has got me thinking and and hopefully i think others too about their own mortality and that suffering itself is not is not um totally meaningless as well that that there can be something drawn out of suffering of course we don't want pain and or death or suffering for anyone let alone ourselves but that in it we can find meaning that god is accompanying us and that we can accompany other people in their suffering that that's deeply meaningful and deeply important to uh, um the western medical mentality which really comes out of that that christian mindset of accompanying um of accompanying the sick as christ is with us in the, in the sick and in in other plagues that we've seen throughout history especially in europe um or in the roman empire for example p- the people didn't stay with the plague victims they 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 ran away from them because they didn't want to get sick it was the christians that stayed with them and ministered to them and now we're seeing that on a grand scale because that christian mindset has gone out and infiltrated the 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 whole whole culture and the whole world so that and that's a great thing to see the 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 courage of people um with implicitly taking on christian virtue so those two really i think are uh two of the big big ways of thinking about it and then just in my own way of of thinking you know what what does this mean for me what where am i called to be where am i called to be in my own prayer life or in my own work or or in my own actions towards my neighbor that that really brings home my own sense of responsibility before others that that you know I can't just make individual choices that affect me they affect others i have to think about that in a deep way now and i think that's what um we're all being called to do that our individual choices can impact on others in a really serious way with this virus now so that's that's another big question Bill Hobbs, that's very interesting and very inspiring. Thanks for uh, being on the podcast. As, as I said, a special sort of series where we're checking in with CTI members, and I found that to be very rich conversation. Thanks very much, final- Josh. Thanks to CTI. It's a great, great series. I'll just give a final plug to your book, Violence in the Name of God by Joel Hodge, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks again, Joel, for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.